Hello and welcome to a very festive edition of Jaffa Cakes for Proust. Tilt? Are you feeling Christmassy yet? Because it is the season now, isn't it? It's well underway. It is. It's not quite happening at the time of recording. It's a bit grey outside. I think to get the Christmas spirit, I'm going to have to go outside and see one of the outrageous displays with inflatable Santas and flashing angels. I mean, you know, the lights. <laughs> None of that are you being served business. Ah, smashing. Well, light entertainment is very much our thing today, as is Christmas. Because, well, this is sort of like, we're doing a few different Christmas shows this year, aren't we? Because we've got something special coming up next week, which we're going to tell you about at the end of the show. Although if you've recently engaged with any Twitter poll activity uh, at our request, then you probably already know what it's about anyway. But today... We're sort of going back to something that we spoke about last year. Last year, we did a show about Christmas Night with the Stars. And that, of course, was the BBC's little compendium of bits and pieces, stars and little skits and sketches and what have you. That ran from 1958 to 1972. Today, we're talking about the ITV copycat, namely All-Star Comedy Carnival, which ran from 1969 through to 1973. Now... To point out, first of all, that only two out of the five shows survive. There's a little section from 69, which we'll talk about, which has survived. But that is a Dustbin Men sketch. And also, the full shows from 1972 and 1973 are now available on DVD, on the network label, to purchase. I mean, as we'll establish, they are sort of a mixed bag and what have you, and that's what the show's all about. It's very frustrating not having the first three because the last two are a little bit cheap and cheerful certainly compared to Christmas Night with the Stars so it'd be interesting to know if they'd started out with a slightly more razzle-dazzle meeting the BBC on its own terms quality but then we looked we noticed oh it's coming out on DVD and we've already seen them and there's funny things to say and a little light went off in your head Pan Network Cooperation. That must have taken a lot of organising. And then you started looking and looking and looking and you fell down to a research hall and you came up with some notes clenched in your teeth. I couldn't shift this thought. Why was it that when Christmas Night with the Stars had been going since 1958, the ITV waited 11 years to do their own version? Why did they suddenly feel the need to do their own version 11 years later? Particularly as Christmas week at this stage, was traditionally a low earner for the ITV companies in terms of advertising. It's different, of course, nowadays because on Christmas Day you'll see adverts for Amazon and, and all sorts of entities where you can spend your money immediately. But in 1969, no one's starting their sales until at the earliest, perhaps the 27th, 28th. So on Christmas Eve and Christmas Day and even into Boxing Day, there isn't actually a lot of advertising money going round. The ITV companies used to offer quite significant discounts, sometimes even as much as 45% to advertisers for Christmas time itself. And ITV goes through cycles. Generally, the legend is ITV gives up at Christmas. And there always seem to be these little bursts of, no, hang on a minute. Hey, it's ITV Christmas. And then it fades away again. It's not a consistent thing. Just occasionally, somebody seems to have looked at the ratings and saying, I know revenue's down, but let's give it a push. The funny thing is that over the years, ITV was criticised by its own regulator for its Christmas schedules. Once the ITA criticised it for being too populist, and then in 1993, 
the ITC actually criticised it for not being populist enough and <laughs> saying that they hadn't tried hard enough. So to give you an example of an average ITV Christmas from the 60s, let's have a look at 1968, the year before All-Star Comedy Carnival. We've got basically throwaway editions of Opportunity Knocks and Coronation Street, followed by a 17-year-old Western. That's ITV's lineup on Christmas night. So how on earth do we get from that in the space of 12 months to suddenly an all-singing, all-comedian, if that's a word, carnival in 1969? There's a couple of reasons, followed by a whopping great big Jurassic Park-sized reason. Number one, ITV viewing has been on the wane for the past couple of years. It's an ITA report from November 1969, which it says that between April and October 1968, ITV's viewing share dropped from 58% to 47%, though it then rose back to 53% by March 69. Now, part of this is the emergence in 1964 of BBC Two, which of course is eating into the share of the previous duopoly. But the authority report states that the first significant drop in viewing coincided with the new franchises in July 68 and the subsequent cancellation of old long-standing shows such as W Money and Take Your Pick, coupled with strong BBC competition and also the ITV strike of that year, shortly after the new stations went on air. Now, on top of that, you've got the high cost of converting to colour for the companies, having to upgrade their studios. Now, most regions, they need to entirely refit their operations, but even good old colour ready from day one Yorkshire example, discovers that colour-related expenditure is actually higher than they anticipated. So you've got that backdrop there. Share prices are falling and ITV companies are starting to feel the squeeze. As if those two issues weren't enough, there's a big surprise coming in the 1969 budget from the Chancellor at that time, Roy Jenkins. He announces a sharp increase in the commercial TV levy. Now this was a tax on advertising income established in 1964. It's on a sliding scale like income tax, where the companies were allowed to take in 1.5 million pounds of advertising revenue without being liable. Then there were these brackets in which the percentage they were required to pay gradually increased. Now in the 69 budget, Jenkins not only announced an increase in the percentages, but also he institutes a new bracket starting at half a million pounds. And the Independent Television Companies Association says that this will take almost a third of advertising income by the companies. And this is on top of the usual business outgoings such as corporation tax. So these reforms move the companies from worrying about their future profits to, in some cases, actually worrying about their existence. STV, for example, in early 1970, they had to ask the ITA to defer the rental payment in February because they had effectively run out of money to operate the station. I thought they had a license to print money. Ah, well, yes, that was in the good old days, before levies. HTV Wales and West, they discussed the possibility of closing studios and cutting local programming. And in the weeks immediately following that 69 budget, Yorkshire and Anglia, whose areas slightly overlap, they begin openly talking about forging a working relationship that would see them share studios and equipment as well as possibly even identical schedules being produced. And of course, at this time, the ITV listings vary wildly from place to place, even in peak time. Now, this prompted speculation that other franchises would follow suit, and this wasn't popular with everybody. Peter Cabri at Westwood, for example, warned that it would turn ITV into a poor man's BBC. But it's against this backdrop that we suddenly see this curious phrase, an independent television production, appear in the TV Times for Christmas 1969. Now, just to tie the loose ends on this before we move on, the following year's budget performed a U-turn, tax-free threshold was moved not back up to 1.5 million as it had been, but all the way up to 2 million pounds. 
and there were adjustments to the subsequent brackets. And then in 1971, the new Tory government halved the levy altogether in February. Coincidentally, advertising revenue began to increase in 71, and thus ITV found itself out of the danger zone. But it's during that tumultuous period companies get together and use their first colour Christmas to present a united front. So that brings us to 1969, 6pm, Christmas Day, and the first all-star Christmas comedy carnival. It's an interesting Christmas that year anyway, because there's no Queen's speech. Why was that? When did the film Royal Family go out? A film first went out, I believe it was in the summer of 69, but it was a co-production between BBC and ITV. So not only did it first air on BBC, it then had a repeat on ITV, and then when the stations went to colour, it got repeats there again, including one on Christmas Day. And so not just the fact that the film had been shown four times by the end of the year, but also it was felt that the film itself had been something of a mistake. It was slightly too intrusive, showed a little bit too much of the royal family in our day-to-day lives. And of course, it's not something that ever turns up as a repeat these days on television. So yeah, the Queen decided that she would not make any kind of broadcast message this year. It wasn't just television, it was radio as well. And the only message from her was... <laughs> yes, it was, it was Bob Todd's Christmas message. <laughs> yeah. So it was simply a printed message that appeared in the newspapers. And of course, normal service resumed in 1970. And of course, has done unbroken ever since. It's odd looking at the 69 listings because you've got programmes on at 3 o'clock. And this doesn't seem normal. This situation's alluded to in that night's All-Star Comedy Carnival. Do you want to go through the running order? So it's presented by Des O'Connor, and we have Doctor in the House on the buses, Please Sir, Mr Digby Darling, Joker's Wild, The Dustbin Men, and Coronation Street. I find that interesting. I mean, Coronation Street's the most sitcom-y of soaps, but looking at the cast list they put in the TV Times, it's nearly everybody... It's not like a two-hander with two Coronation Street characters, what they're doing at Christmas. So, so I'd imagine there's some sort of knees up in the Rovers. It's suited to that, isn't it? It would be suited to a little six, seven-minute Chaz and Dave's way hey in the Rovers' return. And actually, aren't there later Coronation Street episodes for Christmas Day which are pretty much like that, full-length versions? Oh, there'd be ones before 69 as well. Yes, you tend to get pantos or sing-alongs, something of that nature don't know if there are any that go out on Christmas Day. I, could, I assume there must be. But I forgot to do that bit of research. How are you on Crossroads? Uh, not so good. So we, we know people who are actually really Crossroads experts, so we really should have had them come on and talk about this. But I'm intrigued as to what was actually the content of the Christmas Day episode 1969 because we have a little hint in the TV Times which simply says, Meg, quotation, Sandy, the suspense is more than flesh and blood can stand. Where's my present? And I'm assuming that at this time, probably the soaps are going out on Christmas Day, and I think this probably continues all the way up to probably EastEnders beginning. They're largely going to be throwaway episodes, aren't they? Because you're not going to have the same committed viewers on the day itself when there are all the things going on on Back Christmas Day. Back to All-Star 69. We have Cribbins from Bernard Cribbins' Thames Sketch Show, some of which have turned up on YouTube recently. Father, Dear Father... I think Father Dear Father's the only one. Is that not every year? We'll yes, it is. It is. Never mind the quality, feel the width. Vince Poe and Harry Driver sitcom. Dear Mother Love Albert. The Thames Years. Which is gone now, isn't it? It's all white. Yes, so only when it went to Yorkshire. That's available on DVD. Two in Clover. 
that's Vince Powell and Harry Driver. This is available on DVD. This is Sid James and Victor Spinetti. After that, Mikey Arwood. Hey. That's a couple of years before his transfer to BBC. And, of course, at the time he was with ATV. So all that exists from this is the Dustbin Men segment, which is fairly cliched. It's just them. They're irritated by the fact they didn't get enough tips to get a blotto at Christmas, and then there's a whole thing about a baby's being born on Christmas Day, which I'm sure is possibly a cliche. No, actually, no, it probably wasn't a cliche in 1969 because it would have been seen as rather sacrilegious, and the Dustbin Men liked controversy and vulgarity, so probably a relatively new idea then. But Eric does mention no queen. I think he says something like Des O'Connor's got a nice face, but he's not quite the same. So Des O'Connor, of course, presenting that year's carnival. It's available on the All-Star Comedy Carnival DVD that's come out. It's also available on the Dustbin Men DVD. And this is a whopper of a show, because by this point, Christmas Night with the Stars on BBC has settled down to an hour and a half length, generally speaking. This is two and a half hours. This is the bulk of peak time. Looking at that original list, it's difficult to get a feel for it without being able to see it, but just looking at some of the names that are on there, I mean, some of these people, for example, they might be appearing on something like Joker's Wild, but, for example, we've got Huey Green, we've got Ted Rogers. The 72 and 73 shows that we've seen have guests appearing between the skits, so there's a good chance that Des is going to have some guests with him on stage over the course of this show. Did you mention that when the show was over, Benny Hill was on? Yes. Now, this is the only time that Benny Hill appeared on Christmas night. It was his second Thames show, and the audience dipped from the first one. And for that reason, Thames didn't put Benny Hill on Christmas Day itself. From then on, Benny Hill would quite often be on over Christmas, but in a higher priority area for ITV, perhaps, say, the, the days before, or sometimes Boxing Day, for example at the point where the sales had started to, to arrive earlier and earlier at the end of the year. Yeah, and in keeping with ITV protocol at the time, then the regions largely go their own way from this point. Some of them are showing films, Yorkshire showing Alan Wicker. The films themselves vary between region to region. So, yeah, they got the network together for two and a half hours and then <laughs> they all go off and do their own thing again. It's a shop window for colour as well. We should really emphasise that point that this is ITV's first yes, colour. Yes, I mean, the Christmas. Dustbin Men segment, that was the first time anybody had seen the Dustbin Men in colour. But if you think that we're going to go through every single one and work out which of those sitcoms were running circa November the 15th, 1969, yeah, we, we, you'd be absolutely right. And then there's like, <laughs> then, it's, then it gets creepy. 1970, we'll just go through a quick list. Girls About Town. I don't know if... The, the, now, I've copied these out of the TV Times is, is, is over the time, but I don't know if they're in order. So I don't know if we start with Girls About Town. That was Denise Coffey and Julie Stevens. It was meant to be a women's lib-based comedy. I think there's a cover of a TV Times with Julie Stevens has her back to the camera and she's taken off her bra and Denise Coffey is poking her head through one of the armholes and grinning. <laughs> Go on, then you talk about The Worker. No, The Worker, this is ATV, and then later on came back as part of Brucey's Big Night in 78. Des O'Connor, he's back this time, but he's not comparing the show this year. He's back of his own little segment of his ATV network show. Those are the hardest bits to imagine, the things that are segments of variety shows. A second Coronation Street Christmas segment. Then we've got The Lovers. Hark at Barker. 
Christmas 1970. Now, this must be one of the very last things that Ronnie Barker does on ITV, because, of course, the following year, both himself, Messers, Barker and Corbett, Hands up if you only know what the word messes means from <laughs> continuity announcements into the two Ronnies. The following year, the two Ronnies are on the front cover of the Radio Times. Big BBC signing for 71. And of course, that was the first time they actually became known as the two Ronnies, despite having worked together on both the Frost Report at the BBC and then as part of David Frost's LWT from 68 onwards. I have a feeling they've been billed somewhere else as the two Ronnies before then. Possibly not on screen. It might be in a TV Times or something like that. Don't take that as 100% factual. We've got a big, big success coming up next. Doctor in the House. Big sitcom for LWT that started the year before in 69. And this is still its first incarnation. I think by this point we've probably had a change of cast because Martin Shaw appeared in the first series and he departed after that and he was replaced by Jonathan Lynn. Another segment of Joker's Wild. Barry Cryer and his comedy chums throwing out old jokes and smoking and smoking (laughs) and smoking. A lot of that goes on, isn't there? So it's back to Dear Mother Love Albert now ensconced at Yorkshire Television and keeping up with the Albert theme then got Albert and Victoria, which was a sitcom again by Yorkshire, and this starred Alfred Marx. And this is actually set in 19th century England. Is he playing Prince Albert? Hang on, let's check. Let's check this. No, it says he's playing Albert Hackett, a middle-class man. He and his wife Victoria have nine children, and he is used to getting his own way, it says. Oh, a bit of a role reversal here, because both series actually survive. But the 1970s short is lost. After that, for the love of Ada, and Gary will tell you all about it, and also he will perform the theme tune to the movie version. I'd rather not. For the love of Ada, love the little show, Irene Handel, Wilfred Pickles, and yes, there was also a movie version of it, and the theme tune sung by music song Gilbert O'Sullivan goes something like this. Dad is on the toilet. Mum smoking a fag. Grandpa's in the restroom. Why is this house full of toilets? And it's got such a lovely theme that the sitcom as well. I think it might be Ron Grainer did the theme for this. It's gorgeous. Now to have that abomination on the film instead. Crippens. Crippens is back with his Thames sketch series. And then returning once more, as he will do again and again and again, we've got Father, dear Father, dear Father, dear Father. We're just reading out lists. Come on, stick this. Right, okay. 1971, Dr. Large Lovers. Oh, Mother of Albert. Says Les Lollipop Loves Mr. Mole. And Father, dear Father. Stop, 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 stop. Presented by Mike and Bernie. We need a little bit more context about 1970. It was between 1969 and 1971. That's true. On the Buses has graduated to its own Christmas Day special now. So that follows the big old larking about. And also Val Dunican is a new ITV signing. He's been poached and he's got the front cover to the TV Times along with the host of the All-Star Comedy Carnival who we've omitted to mention, that being... Max Bygraves. Indeed. So, yes, that's your Christmas Day, 1970. And, of course, after the Brave New World in 1969 and and, and colour and everything, I mean, who knows what's possible? They could put a man on the moon, for goodness sake. Well, problem is, there's a colour strike. 
at ITV, and that goes on from November through to February 71. And this affects the production of certain programs, and that's why, for example, you see on ITV, free and ITV Encore, occasionally you'll see black and white episodes of On the Buses and Upstairs Downstairs, for example. Also, anything that's been made in colour, forget about it. Everything's been transmitted in black and white. That's a bit of a downer, isn't it? After you've just bought that new colour set the year before. Maybe you bought your colour set in 1970 because you missed out on seeing the All-Star Comedy Carnival in colour last year. So this year, you're going to be ready for it. This is a specific ITV problem, and the BBC were not above making jokes about it. Thing about Bernard Braden and whatever show saying, if you're feeling a little bit off-colour, why not turn to ITV? So I've already taken you through 1971. No, let's, let's do that properly. Go on. Okay, I'll do it again. Doctor Large Love as our mother makes three his and hers please surf and street gang girls about town. Dear Mother Love Albert says Les Lollipop loves Mr. Mole and Father Dear Father presented by Michael Bernie Winters. Who's hosting? Oh, you, you did it. <laughs> so, I mean, we've talked about the Doctor series, The Lovers, we haven't talked about it, but I think it's been repeated recently enough, as in towards the end of the last century. We have police uh, followed by the Fen Street Gang. Well, we think, we're assuming this is a correct running order. Who knows? We did an entire show about Lollipop Les, Mr. Moore. We'll talk about Says Les later. A Mother Mix 3, that's the one with Wendy Craig, yes? That's the one, yes. That's available on DVD as well, isn't it? The only thing in this list that's leaping out at me as nothing setting a light off is His and Hers. His and Hers is a Yorkshire sitcom ran from 1970 to 1972. Ronald Lewis and Sue Lloyd, and then later in series 2, Barbara Murray. And they play a couple, it's a role reversal, a bit of business, where the chap is a freelance magazine writer who stays at home, and he's doing the cooking and all sorts of bits and pieces, and... His wife, she commutes on the train each day wearing a bowler hat. So there you go. So it's got Tim Brooke Taylor and Madeline Smith as the neighbours as well. Have you seen who's listed as artists appearing in 1971? Because we've got a couple of names there. We've got a couple of interesting names. We've got Brian Moore, ITV's football commentator, and Jimmy Hill. Where are they appearing? Also, Kent Walton! Now, okay, I don't see this bit where it says there was an ITV sport Christmas party in the middle of all this, but that's what it looks like. Yes, well, we'll come on to the sport thing later. We'll talk about sport and light entertainment and which sports suit light entertainment and which sports actually get the light entertainment focus. And surrounding this particular show, we've got Reg Varney's variety programme from London Weekend Television, and then we've got your favourite Christmas movie, Around the Ball in 80 Days. Now we get to... A Christmas we can talk about because we've seen it. And this is why I'm frustrated that I can't watch the first three because the All-Star Comedy Carnival 1972 feels like the image some people at the time had in their minds of what ITV was like. It seems to be not just populist, but bargain basement. I don't know, am I being a horrible snob here? But this, this feels cheaper than it should be. Well, we've got a little bit of shrinkage because where the first three shows have been two and a half hours, this one is down to an hour and three quarters. And it will shrink even more in 73. Now, this is also the last year of Christmas Night with the Stars. And I wonder if perhaps this type of show perhaps has run its course. We've had an expansion of... And this isn't really relevant to Christmas viewing because Christmas viewing there was always an extension of the hours. But generally speaking, all year round, there's been an extension in viewing hours particularly in 72, where daytime viewing began on ITV. So it's not as if time is 
particularly at a premium, as it would have been in 1958. And so more and more shows now, they're getting their own Christmas specials. And that's one thing that you don't tend to get. I mean, it's not 100%, but you don't tend to get a bit in All-Star Comedy Carnival and also a Christmas special of that show in the schedule as well. It does happen occasionally, but not too often. So, what do you reckon? Do you think by 72, the BBC's decided that the format's done and dusted, there's one more of these to come, and then perhaps people are expecting then the full shows from now? Yes, maybe it is. The decline of variety. Actually, it's not the end of the format. We'll talk about that right at the end of this podcast. Jimmy Tarbuck. I'm a fan of JT's. You are a little bit more cool on him. Is that fair? Yeah, that just might be where I'm from. Liverpool is way too far to the west from me. They're different there. I don't come from a port town. Maybe they are much more gregarious and cheeky. So he just doesn't do it for me. Of course, the show is being staged in his own home. Like Russell Harty. <laughs> yes, when, knowing me, knowing you, did that whole thing about coming from a model of Alan Partridge's house, was it purely a Russell Harty reference? Does it expand that it might be a Russell Harty and All-Star Comedy Carnival reference? Or are the television schedules littered with Christmas specials coming from fake versions of Star's Homes, or I think in Russell Harty's version, his actual house. We have seen a Silver Black Christmas special from 1983, which has a similar setup. But it's not an area which I'm an expert on, but I would imagine that that's probably a fairly common trope in the 1970s. And at least Alan Partridge actually does say in his Christmas show that this is an exact replica of his home. He doesn't actually try and pull the wool over anybody's eyes. Well, neither does Tarby, to be fair. He he says this is his house, and then he says, I don't have a stereo system. I have an orchestra. Zoom over, blowing the gaff. Can't accuse him of patronising the audience. I would actually like a home that was in a television studio. I must be honest. I I quite like that idea. I don't mean I want one of those flats that they bulldoze TVC for. I don't mean that. So just that slightly sort of shiny, smooth surface. Wouldn't that be lovely? Imagine how horrible it would be to have to heat the thing. Yeah, it would be utterly impractical, but yeah. We start off with Love Thy Neighbour, which we always avoided talking about in the sitcom club because everybody has an opinion and ours is not particularly original. I think you're going to weigh in on that. You need to say something that hasn't already occurred to somebody and you don't want to appear too much in truth is in the middle. Okay, I don't think it's a bigoted show. I don't think it comes from a malicious place. There's definitely an attempt to portray racism as wrong, but it doesn't quite do the job. Because occasionally you've got the whole thing of, oh, well, they're as bad as each other. Well, yes, out of context they would be, but there's a whole world of context. So it knows what it's doing, it just doesn't do it right. But I don't want to dismiss Vince Powell and Harry Driver and Jack Smithhurst and Rudolph Walker and Nina Baden-Semper and Kate Williams from The Human Race for mishandling race relations in the early 70s while also trying to make people laugh. But I don't also want to say, well, it's not a problem really, is it? We're in a post-racial society. So that's why we never tackled it, because it's complicated. We don't have enough time to say everything that needs to be said about the show itself, the problems it tries to tackle, how it tries to tackle them, how we could all try to tackle them. If we start talking about Love Thy Neighbour in earnest, then we'd have to end by solving racism. 
I think that there's a conversation to be had, and maybe we'll do it one day. I don't necessarily think that the two of us are uniquely qualified to have that discussion. I think that you know some assistance probably would be a good idea for this. And also, I think that talking about race in sitcoms in general would probably be a good idea if we're going to give Love Thy Neighbour a fair hearing, because I suspect that Love Thy Neighbour, okay, looking at it from the vantage point of 2016, it doesn't come across as well as something like, say, Mixed Blessings or The Fosters, but it does come across a lot better than something like Cutting Chips, for example. So, or The Melting Pot. You've seen also... some of The Melting Pot, haven't you? Yes. You yeah, The Melting Pot is a weird show. I think the entire series still exists, but only one episode was ever scheduled on the show. And I don't think it was something that was pulled from the schedule. It was basically one episode was shown as a pilot, and that's as far as it went, as far as transmission was concerned. The only thing that I would add to what you've just said, I think you're absolutely right. The only thing I would add would be that Vince Powell was on record multiple times as saying all he's ever tried to do is make people laugh. And from that point of view, Love Thy Neighbour is a success because it's a very popular show. It got very, very good viewing figures. It came back again and again. It had a movie spin-off. And yes, the underlying message that they're trying to get across is that Eddie is a bigoted fool. Anybody who thinks that Love Thy Neighbour is racist, just consider that somebody who genuinely was racist would probably hate that show in the 1970s because... It's got a black couple starring in it, and quite often they are making fun of white Eddie Boo. I don't think that that would sit very well with somebody who actually genuinely had racist views. Hey, Rudolph Walker's character gives Mrs. Booth a right big smooch. Yes, he does. After Love Thy Neighbor, Rod Hull and his naughty emu. Now, you had quite an interesting idea about something that you would like to see done with Rod Hull using sort of modern technology. Well, we're in the age of, look at this clip of Big Bang Theory without the audience laughter. Garfield minus Garfield's thought bubbles. Garfield minus Garfield. I'd like to see Rod Hull minus the emu. Take some footage of him performing with the emu and CGI out the emu so we can see what it would just be like with just him attacking people with his hand. It'd be very expensive to do, but I think it would be worth it. You just want to see then Rod Hull grab Tarpy's crotch and roll around the floor with him, which is exactly what you would see. Yes, he does. He does. Yeah, they roll around the back of the sofa and everything. He does the same to Brucey as well, six years later. So, yeah. After that, we get nearest and dearest. And in keeping with the Not On Your Nelly we watched all those years ago, we have a flashback to childhood with the children played by adults. Was Hilda Baker a big fan of Chesperito? She have a big stack of Chavo del Ocho episodes sent over from Mexico. It's, alas, something that we'll probably never know. I think we can all work out the answer for ourselves, actually. <laughs> <laughs> I like Nearest and Dearest. I'm watching Nearest and Dearest just now. I've got the box set. Okay, it's undemanding and what have you, but it makes me laugh. I even like Not in Your Nelly. There you go. It's a tragedy that was never actually a Not in Your Nelly film. There's actually a modern problem in this nearest and dearest, prequelitis. I don't like when they have a flashback or a prequel and they explain something. There are a few people who complained about the Star Trek prequels. They explained why he's called Bones and it's not just because he's a doctor. Come on, we didn't need that spelling out for us. And we do have Nellie getting her watch that doesn't have a little hand on it. 
we see the origin of that. We didn't need to see the origin of that. The only disappointing bit for, for me there was no Joel Gladwin in this. It's good. And then Gary had to wipe away a tear for the next segment because it was Moira Anderson. No, hang on a minute. You're not homesick. You lived there. Oh, well. And I'm slightly too young for that whole era, to be honest. Bill McHugh was a guy in Hogmanay when I was growing up, but the era of Andy Stewart and Kenneth McKellar and people like that, that, that had sort of passed by. Anika, that's different. Uh, Nika, yeah. She should have been on every Hogmanay. Still should be. But, yeah, and then Tarby makes a comment to which Maud Anderson reacts. Just, you know, she doesn't say anything. She just sort of gives a, a look. She basically flips the bird, but only using her face. It's nowhere covered in any guideline book. But her expression itself, I would say, was an obscene gesture. Full credit to her. But then again, I mean, I've seen her in a Les Dawson special and she can hold her own against Les, so she's clearly got the chops. Then we have Father Dear Father. He can't stop crossing over with those drama shows, can he? There's an implication here that Father Dear Father takes place in the same universe as Softly Softly. (laughs) And the problem is, is Father Dear Father, if it's a good use of Patrick Cargill's skills, it should be a farce, and farce needs time. He can't do a good ten-minute farce. So I guess you've got to already have a lot of residual affection for the show to be glad to see it. And I haven't watched enough Father Dear Father. Okay, I've watched the movie and I've watched the Callan sketch. And that wasn't enough to prime me for this. Not watched the Australian version. I'll have to go through it all sometime because I've enjoyed what I've seen of The Many Wives of Patrick. Yes, yes. Do you know what? I know we've spoken already about pre-All-Star ITV, but is it not a tragedy that there wasn't an All-Star Comedy Carnival in 1967? Because... Patrick Cargill could have been in that, but not in Father Dear Father. What, they would have done a skit about the prison? Yes, exactly. Idea. Exactly. That would have been wonderful, wouldn't it? Christmas in the village, why ever not? <laughs> well, okay, let's unwrap this. It should have been the ITV All-Star Christmas Carnival. Take out the word comedy. Christmas with Budgie. Keep it going till 1978. You can have Christmas with Enemy at the Door. <laughs> And the sound of sets being switched to BBC One. <laughs> Christmas with Big Breadwinner Hog. <laughs> Speaking of not entirely using people the way they're normally used, uh, Harry Worth. Another person I associate with half an hour of misunderstandings building to chaos. And in this, it's just a butler sketch, standby of music hall kind of thing I associate with the two Ronnies. It's no dinner for one. No, and the thing is that it's not really a great use of Harry Worth. I mean, Harry Worth had been in the BBC for many years with the sitcom Here's Harry, and quite a few of them have turned up on YouTube just recently. A really good one to see, if you've never seen Harry Worth's sitcom before, is the episode where he finds himself applying to become a policeman. That's a really good half an hour. But, yeah, at this point he's transferred to Thames, He's doing a sketch show called 30 Minutes Worth. He's then going to do another sitcom for them a couple of years later. And then he does a sitcom for Yorkshire at the end of the decade before he returns to BBC in a David Croft show, Oh Happy Band. Yeah, this is not quite the Harry Worth that you sort of think of. It's not really the verbal misunderstanding and what have you. So you were very pleased about the appearance of William Mervyn in this sketch. So that, Yay, that, that, TV's Mr. Rose. Yes, so that, that was that was a highlight for yourself, but it didn't feel like a Harry Worth sketch. It felt like Harry Worth in a sketch. So, yeah, this definitely could have been a two Ronnies 
skit. It could have been Dave Allen or whoever. So, but it was nice to see them all the same. Now we get to the bit that I think should have been the pattern for the whole show: Christmas with Wargun, off the set of Lunchtime with Wargun. Not a show I'd heard of before, actually. That's probably a terrible confession to make. When all the tributes were coming out for Sir Terry earlier this year, this didn't get mentioned. So, do you know anything about Lunchtime with Wogan? Lunchtime with Wogan, as we mentioned earlier on, the broadcasting hours were extended in 1972. And so you had a whole slate of new programmes on ITV from October 72 onwards. And Lunchtime with Wogan was a show that went out on Tuesdays at 1 o'clock and ran until 1973. It's very ATV-centric, so you'd have bits and pieces with a regular crew. It seems that all of that crew have combined in this little skit along with other ATV people. We we had a little idea when we were watching this. Back in the early days of not just BBC television, but television, basically, in the UK, you had this little entity about an hour or so, around 10 minutes, called the Christmas Television Party. That went out on BBC TV on Christmas night. And, of course, we don't have access to that, of course, we can't see it, but I imagine that it was something along these lines, something a bit more basic, where it's a single studio and you've got a sequence of people coming on doing little party pieces and so on. So this got me thinking, instead of having the single network show hosted by Tarby or whoever it may be in any given year. What if all the different regions did their own regional television party on Christmas night? So to effectively assuage Peter Cadbury's fears, rather than you ended up with a poor man's BBC, it's actually full-on regional ITV, where you're given the local viewers their local celebrities, their local anchormen and so on. You can have Red First Kyle's playing the spoons, if that's something that he did, for example. Then you came up with an idea that I think makes it actually feasible. I think you're pitching something different. Yeah, well, my idea was actually, in some ways, the way the ITV VT engineers Christmas tapes went, which was everybody pitched in, everybody sent a little bit, and they were all watched. And I think there was a competition involved. So the idea is every region makes a segment with its stars and then they're all shown together and the hosting is done by the region so it's all networked everybody gets all the same sketches but the linking material is for your region and in some ways it's a way of differentiating yourself from the bbc yes so well, yeah, over there they're going to be national but if you want to sit by a local fireside the more familiar surroundings of your region come over to itv and we'll go around the country and visit other people and see what they're doing for Christmas. That just what I like about this lunchtime with Wogan, it's ATV stars all together acting silly. We have Carl Wayne. We have Lollipop Loves Mr. Mole. This is done not as a sketch within a sketch. They come on, they're meant to be contestants, and Leslie Crowther and Sylvia Sims from My Good Woman. So they're meant to be playing a game. Guess who the celebrity is? And the celebrity is Larry Grayson. Where Larry Grayson goes, Nolly follows. <laughs> so Noel Gordon comes on as Meg from Crossroads, and she has Mrs. Turtle with her. And yes, I got very excited by this. I thought, this is fantastic. This is frothy. And a lot of the other stuff that happened in the show didn't quite measure up to that. I think because it's just like, right, we've shot the series of whatever sitcom this is, and... Let's just set up for half an hour to shoot the five-minute segment. 
It's been quickly written. It all takes place on one set. It's only the core cast. Whereas this felt lots of people are getting together. We've had to send a car round to Hugh Lloyd's place to bring him over to come onto the Lunchtime with Wogan set to do something special. I don't want to go all, what's the word? Nostalgic, I suppose. So if that's a bad thing. But it would be lovely to actually see this still being done in 2016 at Christmas time. This reminded me a good deal of the regional inserts that you got on Children Need in the past. Regional inserts these days on Children Need, they, they tend to be a little bit sort of homogenised and what have you. But I remember, for example, 1993 seeing Northern Arms, Children in Need. And it was the BBC and Ulster TV presenters playing charades. Brilliant. That was it. There was no attempt doing anything outlandish or sophisticated or anything. It was just fun. They were just faffing about. There must be, in 2016, there must still be local celebrities, even if they're not on the TV. There must be people who are known in particular areas. It's like if you're travelling around the UK and you go into like a place like HMV or something like that, you see all the usual DVDs that are available everywhere, but then you usually see like one DVD of a stand-up comedian that you've never heard of because they're really well-known in that area and nowhere else. It would be smashing to see this kind of thing happen. I don't think that the local TV stations that run now have got the budget for this or whatever it may be, but I'm quite happy with Jimmy Tarbuck. You're not quite so keen on them, but I think we both agreed that Tell would be a great host for this format. Yes. Back to the studio with Tarby and Wandsworth School Choir. You have a couple of songs. Tarby sings one of them. Then it's on the buses. Nothing particular to say about that. Fairly average edition of the show. Well, you know, technically we have already covered this on the sitcom club because one Christmas special previously, ourselves, George and Rob actually played the On the Buses board game and theoretically our topic for discussion was this very On the Buses special. But I think that just in case anybody didn't hear that particular sitcom club, I think we probably should just mention a couple of little details about this sketch, namely that it's completely utterly bonkers and like nothing you've ever seen before or ever will see again. It's all on film. It's all on film that has been dragged across the floor of a cinema in Soho before being, if I being dragged through Soho before being projected, Reg Varney isn't in it, and there's nothing really to acknowledge the fact that the person where Stan should be isn't Stan. It's Larry Martin, sitcom standby regular, seen here, there, and everywhere. About to be seen in the first few series of Why You Being Served from the following year, and he will be seen in the last series of on the buses, because Reg Varney, at this time, he's not quite part-time yet, but Reg Varney is moving back into variety shows on television, and he then leaves on the buses halfway through the next series, the final series. And so you have various characters come in. Nobody quite replaces Stan, per se, but you have new people come to the, the depot. Eufa Joyce is in one episode, for example, and Larry Martin appears as one of the new bus driver recruits, and so that's the role that he's sort of playing in this. Stephen Lewis hasn't had a haircut recently. <laughs> I'm not saying he's like Led Zeppelin length, but it's just ever so slightly too long to be Blakey. And it just gives an odd quality to him. We get bits like Olive and Stan's mum pushing their face up against the glass of the bus and pulling faces. Like, we haven't got much time for proper jokes, so just pull a face. And the whole concept is somebody's left a goose on the bus. <laughs> And Jack rings its neck. Not quite. He's planning he on He wants to ring its neck, and I thought for a moment, it's not realistic, but 
reality has been somewhat changed in this atmosphere. They go into Blakey's office. I mean, everything looks wrong. It, it's a real bus depot. They go into Blakey's office, and whatever lens they're using, it's just showing slightly too much. It's not quite a fisheye lens, but when it moves, it doesn't look natural. <laughs> I don't know how many times I've seen this sketch. It's a lot. It's on YouTube, the, the whole thing by itself, and I've seen it many, many times over the last few years. So my brain was preparing to see Jack giving it the full warrior queen on some unfortunate Christmas goose, whereas instead it's humans nil, goose won, and the goose starts chasing it, and they all back off. And that's the end. That's the last we see of them, is them backing off in slow fear from a honking goose. By the way, I've never actually noticed this before. And I can't tell you how many times I've seen that sketch, but it's, it's too much. It's, it's, it's almost certainly, it's definitely double figures. Definitely double figures. But I've only just noticed right now, the photograph they're using in the TV Times to illustrate this is a photograph of Stephen Lewis, Reg Farney and Michael Robbins. <laughs> One out of three, ain't bad. <laughs> Do you think that all of Series 7 should have been like that? Do you think it all should have been on grotty, dirty, filthy film with the slightly wrong lens? Definitely, yes. And also genuine. not making this a Jack necking a bottle of whiskey whilst he's on duty. It's like he's completely given up now. He's given up any suggestion of him being a, a civilised human being. If only Jack and Victor had been on that bus. <laughs> yes, thank you. The pity drop's excellent. We go back to the studio. Now, do you remember that Simpsons that has a scene at Martin's birthday party? No. And he has a magician. And when introducing himself, he goes, I'm a math magician. David Nixon, the great television magician, comes on. Oh boy, something good is going to happen. First thing he does is a bit of a math trick. Maths trick, sorry I've been living here too long. It's a good maths trick though. But it's mathematic. No, no, I want you to make Tarby disappear. Well, he sort of does. For a couple I don't of mean minutes. permanently, I'm not a monster. Anyway, David Nixon then saves the day, of course, because he does the trick with uh, putting a box inside a box, then putting that box inside the other box. So which box is bigger? They're both bigger than the other. So David Nixon, he doesn't let you down in the end. One interesting little detail about this is that David Nixon was the host of the original Christmas Night with the Stars, 1958, which of course we talked about last year. And here he is, opposite the very last Christmas Night with the Stars, but on the opposition. And in neither appearance does he play his Mellotron. That's a bit of a letdown for me. Yeah, well, there's plenty of David Nixon, actually. A surprisingly large amount of David Nixon on YouTube. Some of his tempting. Including TV. him playing his Mellotron. After that, says Les. This comes a close second to Christmas with Wogan. But that's enough about Les Dawson. Stop talking about Les Dawson. It's a Sid Lawrence Orchestra. Ba -da -ba -da. <laughs> I've actually stalled in my buying of Says Les DVDs because, yes, it's like, oh, great, excellent comedy, excellent. Oh, Les, you're really going, whoa, whoa, whoa. That's quite enough of that. Says Les with a Siddler on orchestra and a Blink and You'll Miss It cameo by Les Dawson. Les just does a silly monologue, and then we do get a nice big band number with some demure dancing this year. Next year will be a bit hotter. But that works for me. You get a couple of things in the segment. Not the sense of it all being on one stage. It's show busy. Hooray. Just a shame that 
There were earlier says I'm not. We've already read out the running orders. I can't remember if there's an earlier says less sketch because in the early series of says less, Red vs Kyle appeared on screen. And then there's Sport. Would you have actually known who this was if he hadn't been name checked? I kind of figured out who it was because I didn't recognise him and he was friends with Tarby. Well, it is of course the first man ever to get a hole in one on television, Tony Jacklin. If you watch a lot of light entertainment like what we do, is it fair to say that you'll have this reaction to, oh, the golf jokes. Oh, here comes the material that I simply cannot join in on. And I suspect a huge chunk of the audience can't join in on either. When you like old school comedians, there's just that dreaded moment when you suddenly feel like somebody switched the language setting to golf. Fair dues, Eric Sykes does some visual humour, trick photography with golf balls, but Pringle jokes, they don't do it for me. We're a bit back to me and Henry McGee and also my issues with Tarby. It's not a rational thing, it's just like, oh, golf jokes. Suddenly everything's got more grown up. So the fact that Tony Jacklin comes on, talks for a bit, then sings. Am I being unfair, Gary? Or did the people watching ITV in 1972, who were all terribly low people with middens in the back garden, I assume, would they have been equally as, what? What is a golf? I don't know about that. Pass us some more bread and dripping, ma. They wouldn't have been what is all this golf all about. But at the same time, it's a bit more sort of BBC Two, I suppose you would say. It's not the most inclusive of sports. It's not really a sport that just anybody can start playing in the back garden, for example. I mean, everybody's played in a putting green at some point in their life, so everybody knows what golf is. It's not like we're doing polo jokes or anything like that, and you had to start explaining the intricacies of it or anything like that. If you had Prince Charles as his guest, then that may have happened. Can we have said to have had a polo joke in this show? If you know your comic strips, maybe. Earlier on, Nearest and Dearest, Jimmy Jewell mentioned Flash Gordon. Flash Gordon, in the comics, was a polo player. That got changed for the 1980s movie. For some reason, it was decided that a polo player did not make a good action star. That's why they made him a footballer. <laughs> it can appear a little bit sort of exclusive and what have you. And, I mean, I quite enjoyed the Eric Sykes sitcom, the 19th Hole. I enjoyed the bits and pieces that we saw of that. But, yeah, sometimes it can be a little bit to the exclusion of large sections of the audience. And the following year, he's got a couple of sportsmen coming on and they're I would From say curling. They're, they're, <laughs> they're much more of the ITV ilk. It should have been Big Daddy. Yes but I mean well, great. we've had Ken Walton we don't know what he was doing the year before I'd love to have seen that. Would you have liked to have seen Jackie Powell come on and just stretch Jimmy Tarbuck for like 10 solid minutes <laughs> do some moves on him and what have you Jimmy knows nothing of this skit this has not been rehearsed he didn't even know that Jackie Powell was coming on it's a strange ending to the show, because our last sketch is with the Fen Street gang. This, like on the buses, has the feeling of being written on the day. Uh, get the principals together. <sighs> what are they doing? Uh, Christmas party, that's it. They can all run around a living room, acting the giddy goat. Job done. I'm not accusing Esmond and Larby of being lazy. Because you do have this problem with a format like this. Do you really want to bring your air material? When the audience might be deep in slumber from turkey and puddings and selection boxes. Okay, the two Ronnies, right? You remember you had your theory about the perfect two Ronnies Christmas special? 
he sent me a video of this Christmas trailer. Oh, <laughs> one. I don't know what. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And the little clip of the two Ronnies was them in a circus just marching round. He said it should just be there for fifty minutes, just them marching round. So you don't have to pay attention. And the kids can play with their toys. Everybody can look at something else. And you just glance over the TV, and there they are. Oh, it's them. Uh, there they are. Great, fantastic. And then I think we end with a song, but. It's odd. You'd think the last sketch would be something a bit more. Wait for it, wait for it, and here they are. And I don't think the Fen Street Gang had that place in the nation's hearts. Okay, well, I've got a bit of a theory about this. And as far as the Fen Street Gang is concerned, I mean, okay, the 5C crew are brilliant, but part of the fun of Police Star is seeing them alongside John Alderton and John Sanderson and Delia Gagler. I've got a bit of a theory about this running order. Bearing in mind that we're largely going opposite Christmas Night with the Stars on BBC, but also we're going opposite the Mark and Wise show. It's a slight overlap, not huge, but slight. I've got a feeling that perhaps there's front-loading going on in this show. More people possibly are watching ITV at quarter to six in the evening on Christmas Night than they're going to be past eight o'clock, for example. So towards the end, we've got Tony Jacklin sequence, we've got Fen Street Gang, we've got the last sing-song from the choir and so on. Whereas we've had a lot of the, the, the big name stuff already. We've had on the buses and you know, David Nixon and so on. So, And I was thinking this about 73 as well. In a strange way, perhaps, it's formatted along the lines of something like The Tonight Show in the States. People are going to be watching... You know that the audience is going to peel away. Well, yeah, because it's not, not only with the show being a bad show, it's just that gradually people are going to be switching to BBC as the evening goes on because they're going to be the one that's got Mark and Wise they're going to be the one that's got, say, Bruce's Generation game, or by this point they're going to have Mike Yarwood, and they're the one that's going to have the big film. The film that's going to be on ITV on Christmas night is not going to be as big as the one that's on BBC. So that's part of my thinking here. I may be wrong about this, but that's just the sort of impression I get. So 1973 starts with Man About the House. Was that an immediate hit? Yes, it was. I don't have much to say about the sketch. We're still in early... George Roper. I forgot his name. I nearly said Stanley. <laughs> well, we're still at Stanley Roper, George Roper, where he's a bit gruff. But it's the typical thing. Mildred wants to have a little bit of time with the young people because they're so wonderful. Or does she? This concept will be questioned. And Man About the House is the kind of thing you can reduce to 10 minutes and have something satisfying because it's a little bit of character interplay. Oh, we're still with Tarby, by the way, and we're still in the model of Tarby's house, and we've just had comedy Christmas cards at the beginning, like we did in 72. So after Man About House, back in the studio, we have the ventriloquist Neville King. Doesn't Tarby get attacked again? Yes, indeed. It's almost identical. They go rolling around the back of the sofa and what have you. So, yeah, if it worked last year, let's have some more of it. Then we have Billy Liar. I don't like the sitcom of Billy Liar. Because you can't really have things turn to dust. You can't build to a catastrophe. You always have to come back next week and everybody has to really have very short memories. It's just Billy Jerk. There's one other big disadvantage, which is Shadrach and Duxbury. On the outside, it's just a studio set. Whereas in the movie, Shadrach and Duxbury, on the outside, I can look at that and go, directly above there is where I bought my bed! This is becoming less of a critique of Billy Lyle, the sitcom, and more about your own situation, isn't it, really? I mean, that, that, that's a very niche complaint. I think it holds, though. It's true for me. Also, you don't get to see Julie Christie walking around a corner and then weirdly 
coming back round it in a way that indicates there's a wormhole around the back of what became CNA. That might be where the Five Guys is now. Anyway, sorry. Yes, uh, I think that Billy Liar segment, because Billy Liar on the Moon hadn't been, I don't know if it had, hadn't been written yet. The, the book hadn't come out yet. The book came out in 75. I think it would have been interesting to have a Billy Liar segment with Tom Courtney. Older, no wiser, with his horrible marriage and his drunken mistress. Again, shot on 60mm film, no audience. We come back to the studio for Tarby doing his own Tarby thing, reflective of his own show at the time, with his supporting cast. What was it called? Talk with Tarby? Talk talk to Tarby? Tell Tarby. Somebody talk to Tarby, please. (laughs) Really, I like a joke as much as anybody else, but the t-shirts with that sort of thing. So, no, Tell Tarby is a show, and it's an ATV show, although, of course, in this particular instance, they are recording it, Thames. And we've got the regular Tell Tarby lineup. Well, not quite, because in place of Stanley Unwin, who normally appears in this lineup, we have Hugh Paddock. But otherwise, it's a regular lineup of Josephine Chusen, Frank Williams, Linda Bellingham, and Kenny Lynch. This really fits in with the clip show vision of 1970s comedy. Don't we have jokes about female anatomy, the upper portion, I believe? Effeminacy in men? as that BBC guide once had it, and the dermatological melanin content of Kenny Lynch. (laughs) And that's an actual quotation from Tarby, isn't it? It fits in with every stereotype of 70s comedy. So do you mean if you're a lazy producer who's making some awful clip show, I don't know, probably for Channel 5, in the future, all you need to do is get hold of this skit, and then that's it. Basically, you don't need to do anything else. You don't need any Off other... YouTube, uh, naturally. Yeah, you know, oh, you oh, oh, yeah, what? Spend any of the production budget on the DVD. Yeah, and save bandwidth by getting the lowest possible resolution as well. So it actually looks like real player. Sessler's is more of the same, but then again, the same worked last time. We have this silly shaggy dog story that's not entirely satisfactory. The whole joy of it is the picture that Les paints and his use of words. And it also gives a nice sense of a ghost story for Christmas. It's about a wolf man rather than a ghost, but it seems to unintentionally, semi-intentionally, maybe completely intentionally fit in with this idea that Christmas is not just turkey and crackers, it's ghost stories. And then we have a Sid Lawrence number, big band, and the women are being a little bit more zoo. Yeah, it's a, it's a little bit beyond Pan's people and legs and cords. We're getting into zoo territory. Maybe even hot gossip with their golden bras. Plus the appearance of Cosmo Smallpiece. After that, Return of the Ones with School Choir. And I can't remember what they do. I assume they sing. Maybe they play a five-a-side, I don't know. Don't they sing a new carol? That's the way it's introduced, isn't it? Well, why not? Because I was asking yourself, what is the definition of a carol anyway? I didn't think there was such a thing as a new carol. I thought they were all ones you'd heard before. I thought that's how it worked. Forgot to research the meaning of the word carol. Yes, I do remember seeing a documentary fronted by Grief Reese Jones where Howard Goodall talks about how there used to be Easter carols. So carol has a very specific meaning, which is completely lost to us. Just me and Gary. I'm sure the rest of you all know. Then My Good Woman, the Leslie Crowther, Sylvia Sims show. Did we look at that and find there wasn't really much of a concept other than Leslie Crowther's marriage to Sylvia Sims? And they probably crack wise. That's about as much as I could tell from it. I mean, it looked like your sort of, I suppose you would say, typical suburban married couple sitcom of that era. Uh, in this particular instance, 
Leslie Craver was wearing a big spider costume, and I was sort of hoping that that was going to be the case for all the episodes of the show. I've since discovered that that's not the case. They go into a fancy dress party, and it just turns into a calypso of mildly suggestive rhymes about nursery rhyme characters. It's one way of getting over that you don't really want to bring your ear material, but at the same time you've got to give somebody something to enjoy. Let's be a bit rude about Miss Muffet. After that, we dive deep into your gene pool, don't we? Do we? Is this guy related to you? Oh, no, no, no. This was a myth. I was under the impression, when I was a young one, I was under the impression that Fife Robertson was actually a member of the family. And that's because there was a member of the family who looked a bit like Fife Robertson. I then discovered that he was not Fife Robertson. So, there you go. But Fife Robertson, he turns up and they do a little skit. And Fife Robertson just sort of every man sort of figure with the microphone in hand. You ever see like Python or, or Benny Hill or whatever it is in that era and you've got man with microphone in hand who comes up to whoever and says excuse me sir I'm from BBC and can you tell me about this? That's Faith Robertson basically. So, Beard and Trilby. The sketch revolves around the idea that all of his reports start with him saying I'm standing here. Well to be fair he often was so why not mention it? What were we saying about we need populist sporting heroes if we're going to have sporting heroes? In comes Henry Cooper. Tells a few stories, one of which I didn't think he came across as well as he thought he did, about being on a discussion programme with an anti-boxing protester. She was having a go at him. He just Yes, there is provocation, I suppose. Yeah, so he gave some back. Well, it's not, not the first sports hero that we've had already because we've had Bobby Moore appear in the Tell Tarby skit. And then here comes Henry Cooper. And yeah, this is a bit more populous. This is a bit more accessible. This is a bit more in tune with the ITV audience and what have you. And the wider sports viewing public in general than necessarily golf is. So yeah, this this is nice. And Henry Cooper was a, a good raconteur to after to speaking when he retired and what have you. So quite often appeared in advertisements. Most famously the Brute advert, which he did for the 1970s. Again, I'm sort of thinking this show's been front-loaded again, so like they start with the most popular sitcom of 73, the most popular new sitcom of 73, probably other than Are You Being Served, which is Man About the House. So that's gone up first. Well, when we're going back into the studio, I mean, we've got Henry Cooper. That seems to be putting out a big name. Yes, but his section is a bit longer, so... The pace has dropped slightly. So you've got the chaotic business going on with Neville King, for example. Whereas this is exactly as Tarby introduces him. I'm thinking of, of a difference between the studio segments and the sitcom segments. So we've had Henry Cooper, and then we go into Spring and Autumn, something which hardly seems to be a sitcom segment. I don't mean it's unfunny. I mean they're not trying to be funny. It's a sentimental little vignette in a church in which Jimmy Jewell explains to this waif and stray that he's taken in in the show uh, about vague concepts of religion. I'm not sure how in-depth he goes. I don't think he pulls out his apocrypha and goes through the story of Jesus making sparrows out of clay. He doesn't break down the book of Revelation or any of that business. Anyway, they look at a crib and they talk nebulously about the religious aspects of Christmas. The audience laughs at one point. But like five minutes in, at first we thought, is this just a audience-free zone? And then when we go back to the studio, we have Val Dunican. So in the studio, we're going back up with, well, hey, it's show business and people you like to look at. And we get a couple of songs, one from Val, then a duet. Is it called Somerville Street? 
duet between Val and Tarby. And then we go to Doctor in Charge. It is Doctor in Charge by this point. So we've moved on to the third incarnation of this show. We've had Doctor in the house. We've had Doctor at large. We're now Doctor in Charge with Robin Nedwell in the main role. You did like this one. And no, I wasn't a fan of this sketch. I really like the Doctor series. I've got the Doctor series box set over there as I'm speaking. And strangely enough, this wasn't on it, which is a bit of an omission. But nonetheless, it's doing the whole business where poor old Duncan Waring has been put upon and people are taking advantage of him. And you think there's going to be like a big sort of U-turn and a big reveal comes at the end. And there really sort of isn't. I mean, yeah, okay, there is to an extent, but it's not quite what I was sort of hoping for. So yeah, in, in a way, this is like a sort of sad glimpse of 20 years into the future and Doctor at the top. To be honest, it's like poor old Waring, he's not standing up for himself and he's been put upon. And that's what he's going to be like in 1991 as well. And also, there is the not just implication, but I think it's actually stated clearly in the script that Paul Collier is going to spend Christmas with a prostitute in a motel. No, 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 no. No, 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 no. that's my interpretation of what was said. That's what it looked like. Okay, I'll let you have that interpretation. And Sid James definitely murdered those hippies and carry on camping. He's just spending Christmas in a motel with a young woman. And I think we end on a... It's not long since I watched this, and 73 has faded from my memory very quickly. Well, we end with all the guests in the studio all together again. Have a nice wee sing song. That's that. I think our descriptions have not been so detailed that you can't enjoy it for yourself if you want to buy a copy from Network. Unless you are an obsessive fan of modern-day Doctor Who or you've watched every edition of Call the Midwife and you can't imagine missing out on this year's, then I would say that there are far worse ways that you could spend your Christmas viewing than by enjoying these two shows on DVD. Because you're going to like lots of it, I would imagine. You're not going to like necessarily every single bit, but that's what these shows are all about. You're going to like certain bits, you're going to tune in to see certain people and so on. And also, if you're a sitcom fan, this is a must, because this is going to be... In some ways, this is going to be your sort of your only glimpse at a couple of shows. And if you've already got certain shows on DVD, then you're going to then get like the complete little bits and pieces. Yeah, I think this is well worth nabbing. And get Markham and Wise while you're at it. Markham and Wise, complete ATV years, that's out as well. So next week, before next weekend, at the beginning of next week, I think we have something alluded to earlier, and voted on by some of our Twitter followers. Yes, coming up next week, we are going to host the pilot edition of a brand new podcast called The Green Burt Experiment, in which the hosts will not always be ourselves when the show launches proper. The hosts look at a single day's TV listings across all channels and discuss them, and see which sort of highways and byways the conversation takes, and what memories it prompts for them and whatever it may be. So it's quite a nice sort of freeform idea. And we're going to be talking, as voted on by yourselves, we're going to be talking about Christmas Day 1985. And my argument is going to be that that is the last really good Christmas Day schedule on British TV. It's the last one where it's just across the board. It's all top notch. If you're wondering why we picked a year ending in five rather than the year ending with six, because it's 2016, that will come up for discussion. But in the meantime, if you want to give our discussion about a royal flush, a listen, or perhaps a duty-free Christmas special of 1986, then you'll, you'll get the same idea. So, in the meantime, if you've got anything at all for us, 
We're going to be talking about pantomime before the end of the year as well, but we are going to be talking about the Top of the Pops as well. So we've got lots and lots of stuff before the end of the year. But in the meantime, if you've got anything at all for us, you can tweet us at Jaffa's for Proust. You can find us on Facebook at Jaffa Cakes for Proust as well. You can email us feedback at sitcomclub.com and you can hear all of our previous shows and our jukeboxes and indeed 800 podcasts across all manner of different shows on podnose.com. And that should be enough listening to see you all the way through to 2017, surely, if you start listening now. So, Tilt, goodbye. In the meantime, this has been myself, Gary, saying thank you very much indeed for listening to All Star Comedy Carnival for Proust. 